as we continue in Ecclesiastes this morning, I want to recap briefly last week, which was basically an overview of all the things that Solomon pursued in his lifetime, because he alone in history had been given the resources by God to pursue all those things to their end game. And this was for our sakes. It was for our benefit to save us the trouble of trying to chase these things down in a pursuit of meaning. We, we call this living under the sun. That's the title of our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a common phrase all throughout the book. And we established last week that it refers to a closed system. It's a closed system uh, apart from the one true and living God. And that included, uh, we mentioned last week, worldviews like naturalism and materialism and Darwinism. All of those are systems that are apart from and devoid of the one true and living God. And so we've got to keep our worldviews straight. So the conclusion that Solomon leads with in chapter 1 is that living under the sun is futility. It's, he says it's like chasing after the wind. It's utterly absurd, totally pointless, and completely meaningless. But sometimes... Even if a person's bought into that system, there can still be this mental assent to the facts that this is a closed system and that ultimately it's meaningless, but that person will still attempt to find ways to mitigate their existentialist dilemma. In other words, um, many people will arrive at the idea that life is ultimately meaningless under the sun apart from God, but they will still strive to find ways to distract themselves from thinking too much about that reality. So then for those people, life becomes about the pursuit of pleasure as a necessary distraction. I want you to think back to when you were a small child. Maybe there are actually small children in the room. Um, When you had nightmares, I want you to think about the kind of things that scared you. Alien invasion. Alien abduction, clowns, alien clown abductions. I know that I just ruined sleep for some of you tonight. I want you to think back to the things that threatened your sense of safety, threatened your sense of well-being, because typically those are the things that we just hate and we loathe those things, right? Things that are overtly evil and overtly scary, things that would do us harm, things filled with malice and evil. And when we experience fear, it's almost always those kinds of things that are the object of our fear. Evil things, malicious things, things that will trouble us and enslave us and ultimately overpower us. And very seldom do we actually fear our own pleasures, our own delights, the things that we long for. Uh, And yet in in a divine twist, that's exactly the more common occurrence. Those are the things that are more dangerous. Those are the things that enslave us. I want to read this article. I know last week I totally pulled the rug out from under you and told you Jeff Bezos had died and and read this fake article, right? This is a real article from 2004. It actually appeared in the news. This happened in Stewart, Florida. I am not making this up. Just disclaimer, because I know I've already set you up. It's like, I just don't believe what my pastor says when he preaches. So this is legit, okay? (laughs) I know, it's like, oh, he's actually telling us facts. Okay, good. 
Stewart, Florida, July 2004, a dramatic rescue ended tragically in Stewart, Florida, a rescue so difficult, firefighters said that they had never seen anything like it. It happened late Tuesday night and early Wednesday morning at the home of a 600-pound woman who was having trouble breathing. Rescuers went in not knowing how difficult it would be to get her out, and 40-year-old Gail Grinds was literally stuck to her couch and had to be removed surgically at the hospital. Authorities estimate that she had been on her couch anywhere from two to five years. Martin County Fire and Rescue crews faced what seemed to be an impossible mission. Everyone who went inside had to wear protective gear. The stench was so powerful they had to blast in fresh air. They tried to cut out the front door, but at four and a half feet wide, it wouldn't work. They had to cut plywood to to get underneath her because the normal stretcher wouldn't uh, suffice. The ambulance was too small, so they had to bring in a trailer to get her out. And while rescue crews came up with a backdoor rescue plan, detectives secured what had become a crime scene, questioning family members about how things got so bad. Using planks, they loaded the woman onto the trailer, still attached to the couch, because removing her at that point would be too painful since her body was grafted to the fabric. After years of staying put, her skin had literally become one with the sofa and would have to be surgically removed. So detectives were investigating whether they had a case of neglect or whether this was just a sad story. Grimes was taken to Martin Memorial Hospital where doctors removed her from the couch, but she died in spite of all the efforts to save her. I share that with you simply to say this, that the greatest danger we face is not from psycho-alien clowns. The greatest danger we face is our own pleasures ruling over us. The things we love, the things we want, the things we spend our resources on. It's the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh that become our capricious gods that rule over us, especially in a culture that only constantly feeds those desires, right? Doritos and daytime TV have become the great sovereigns in Gail Grinds' life. And in the end, her life is what they demanded. And so you see, that, that's the thing. That's the thing. We stay away from God because so often we just intrinsically know that what He wants from us is our very life. He wants all of us. And so we're like, no, I'm not ready to give that. But then the irony of it is that we actually experience the same reality with every other little G God in our pantheon of idols. Whatever God you worship is ultimately going to demand everything from you. And we live in a land where the nightmare is real. People stumble around it in it all their lives, unable or unwilling to wake up to this reality. <clears throat> it was the late Ravi Zacharias, one of my great heroes of the faith, who rightly pointed out that the age-old question of pain is the one that raises the most objections to the reality of God and to the Christian faith. But it's actually the problem of pleasure that is more deadly to our souls. It's not pain that deadens us to God. It's pleasure. A culture that has plumbed the depths of pleasure and found it meaningless, every little pursuit, every delight, constant sweet treats, all the junk food and candy devoid of the calories, that's a culture that can't find meaning any longer. And we think pleasure is our savior our escape from this life and the pains of this life. And when we try again and again to come to pleasure's end, what do people do then? Like you get to the point where it's not pleasing anymore. It's not satisfying anymore. What do you do? 
And I think this is one of the chief reasons why we're seeing an epidemic of suicide in our culture. Solomon would have fit right into our day and age because he was at the top of his game. Nobody had more stuff. Nobody did more stuff than Solomon. And this is where we pick up in chapter 2. Solomon's going to explain in greater detail what came of his pursuit of life under the sun when he gave himself over fully to the pursuit of pleasure. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 to 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And so I became great and surpassed all those who were before me in Jerusalem. But also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. And then I considered that all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, it was all vanity, striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So let's go back and just quickly go back through these verses again and unpack this. I said in my heart, verse 1, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. So this is about pleasure, right? Solomon begins his search for meaning. Let's get the party started. He's going headlong, pedal to the metal in his pursuit of meaning via this avenue of pleasure. And so he says in verse 2, I said of laughter, it's madness, or it's mad, and, and a pleasure, what use is it? So, so now we're dealing with comedy as a, as a pursuit, right? Solomon surrounded himself with stand-up comics and court jesters and, I mean, just all-night binge marathons of Zoolander 1, 2, Anchorman, and Talladega Nights, just all he could handle, right? Potty humor, throw in some 80s John Cusack movies. It's just, it's, it's all there, nothing helped, nothing helped. He says in verse 3, I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart guided me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So now he's into partying. Now he's into partying. The party scene is the place Solomon explored next. Um, it reminded me this week, one of the mission trips I took when we were doing campus ministry, uh, the number two spring break party spot in the nation is a little island at the southern tip of Texas called South Padre. And we went to South Padre with the team, and the whole island was overrun with drunk college students. 
And so we would, one of the, so the, the little Baptist church on the island said, you bring a 15 passenger van with your team because what we'll do, we're going to spend every day, all day handing out business cards that have a hotline number on them. And then, and then they can call us when they're too drunk to drive and we'll go get them. And then you have your people sitting on the bench seats so that you can share the gospel with them when they get in the van. Take them anywhere on the island. And, and, and drop them off. And so then additionally what they did, this is brilliant, because we'd spend all day on the beach handing out those hotline cards saying, look, tonight when you're blitzed, call us, we'll come get you. We'll take you anywhere you want to go on the island for free. And they were just like, what? And so, so that we get all these calls and we'd go get these people. But the, what the church did is they had this mobile kitchen. And so they set up in the parking lot outside the biggest nightclub on the island. And they cooked a bazillion pancakes. Because spongy bread absorbs alcohol. And so these kids would come out of the club and they'd be like, what? Free pancakes? And then they would eat plates of pancakes. And then suddenly they're like, I'm so tired. I just want to go back to my hotel room. And we're like, cool, we'll take you. And get them off the street, right? It was awesome. It was awesome ministry. But it's just this huge party, 24-7, college students everywhere, drunk, inebriated, Everything you can imagine. Now imagine that lasted seven years instead of one week. That's Solomon. That's what he's into. He's like, I'll try this. And it's not just I'll try it. It's like I'll try it. I'm all in, right? Verse 4, he said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Now he's into real estate. Solomon built God's house, right? David wanted to. God said, no, you're a man of blood. You can get everything ready, but your son's the one who's going to build it. And so David got everything prepared, and then Solomon came along and built it, and it took him seven years to build the temple, which doesn't sound so bad until you read on and you realize that it took 13 years for him to build his own house. Where was his priority? He developed a real love and appreciation for architecture and interior design, but that did not satisfy him. And so he says in verse 5, I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. And now he's into gardening. And then I have a flower bed in our driveway that's like in that little turnaround, and I cannot keep the weeds out. I'm just like, that's all I can manage, right? And I have a garden, and, it, and just the weeds alone take all of my time all summer long, and I just give up. Like, this guy had whole forests. He had forests. And he... And not just forests and gardens, he made ponds and streams to water them. I, I grumble if I have to take the hose off the reel. Right? He, he made streams and lakes. It's crazy. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions and herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So now we're dealing with leisure and animals and wealth. And keep in mind, Solomon had, a, had an army of servants to cater to his every whim. His entourage numbered somewhere around 35,000 people. That's the undergrad population at the UW. Those were just his servants, people that waited on him, meeting his every whim. In 1 Kings 4, we're told Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. It was a party all the time. 
He amassed thousands of farm animals, livestock, horses, and exotic pets. And this is just just to divert for a minute. I, I don't understand the rich Saudis on Instagram and YouTube, and they always have cheetahs or lions. I'm like, what are you thinking? Tiger King, guys like that, they always get mauled. I mean, it's like idiots. What, what are you doing? Why do rich people like big, hungry, temperamental cats? I cannot figure it out. I don't know what the deal is. But talking about rich guys, from taxes alone, Solomon earned 25 tons of gold a year. Just from taxes. Not to mention what other dignitaries and foreign, uh, foreign rulers sent in tribute to him, other sources of income. He had a lot of resources. So verse 8 says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, and the delight of the sons of man. So now we're talking about music and sex. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Those three really do go together. And so they didn't have iTunes or Spotify. Solomon had his own theme music playing wherever he went. He had a little traveling band that would just follow him around and play. Think like Emperor's New Groove, Cusco. You know, he had his little band that followed him everywhere. And then poor Kronk, he didn't have one. So he had to like duh, 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 and make his own, you know, everywhere he went, doing his own music. You guys know Emperor's New Groove. Yeah, nod, nod with me. Yeah, okay, good. All right. I'm not as crazy as I sound. We've, and some of you are like, yes, you are. Um, We've mentioned the wives and the concubines. We know from Scripture that these eventually led him away from God into idol worship and sorcery. And that word in the Greek translation of the Bible is pharmakia. It's where we get the word pharmaceuticals or drugs. It is a forbidden place of taking foreign substances with the purpose of altering your state of consciousness. And when we do that, when people do that, you're loosening the connectivity between your your body and your soul, and you're letting other entities come in and gain varying degrees of control and influence in your life. Just totally headlong into into sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So verse 9 says, I became great, surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, and my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So, so this kind of work and anything else he might have missed, just to kind of wrap it all up, he tied anything else that appealed to him, sports, fishing, gambling, eating, shopping, exercising, going to the theater, reading books, travel, whatever it was, all here in verse 9 and 10. And then I considered, verse 11, that all, my, all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended doing it, and behold, it was vanity, striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And here's this conclusion for us. Solomon arranged every aspect of his external world to give him maximum pleasure, and it was all vanity of vanity meaningless. He never experienced true happiness. He never grasped lasting joy or peace. He basically became his own God, worshiping himself, doing whatever he pleased at the expense of other people. And we buy into that mentality and think, man, if I could just have unlimited resources, I'd be happy. You know, it all sounds suspiciously like American culture. This pursuit of pleasure at the expense of other things like integrity and relationship to God. So I was just thinking this week, how do we course correct? As a culture, as the people of God, who are largely given over to some of the same things, 
as the culture, as individuals made in His image, how do we remedy this situation? Well, God gives us the remedy. He tells us in His Word what to do about this. Think about God's covenant people long after Solomon, who had fallen into sin and disobedience and been exiled to Babylon. Didn't we just teach through Daniel? Were you here for that, right? They were exiled. And then they came back into the land of Israel after the time of expulsion, but many of them struggled to reorient their lives around God and His presence among them. And basically, they struggled to make God the priority of their lives. And instead, they focused on themselves, especially making sure that they had adequate uh, security and adequate pleasure. And so God used the prophet Haggai to address this problem. Listen to what God says through the prophet Haggai in Haggai 1, verses 2 to 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, these, these, these people who are my people, who, who are called by my name, they say, you know, the time hasn't come yet to rebuild the house of God. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. But is it a time for yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink and you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. It's never enough. It's never enough. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up into the hills and bring wood and build the house, build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it comes to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Basically, God is asking his people, the rhetorical question, how's it working out being your own God? How's that working out for you? Unless we rush to judgment, to stand in judgment over Israel at that time, we need to take a step back and, and take inventory of our lives and our priorities. If you want the single best diagnostic indicator as to the state of your heart in relationship to the one true and living God, it is first your money. Oh, not a lot of amens. It's first and foremost your resources, your money. Number one indicator of your heart regarding the kingdom versus this life. And then the close number two is your time. You know, there was a time in our culture where people would, their excuse for not going to church was, well, they just want my money. I don't think that's number one anymore. I think actually the time thing is the bigger thing for our culture. I just don't have time. My kids in soccer and softball and this thing and we got this thing and jazzercise and Pilates and all that. We can't. It's like too much, too much involvement, not enough time. And we guard money and we guard time ferociously when Jesus wants us to give them generously. We hoard these resources for ourselves because we're afraid that God doesn't really want the best for us. So we hoard them, and what he wants is for us to be generous with them. And so fear reigns in our hearts. We fear that we won't have enough. We fear that we won't experience joy and pleasure. We fear that we'll have pain and loss in our lives. We fear that God doesn't really love us and want good for us. And all those fears keep us in bondage and keep us from being effective for the kingdom of God. 
See, most people, I think, in the church today are saved, but we struggle to prioritize the kingdom in our lives. We might genuinely believe that we are going to heaven when we die, but we're not living in a way that demonstrates that reality. We engage in this unbridled pursuit of pleasure at any expense because, hey, like life's short and, and, and I got I to gotta make it count, right? YOLO. No. You live forever. You're going to live forever. It's not you only live once. We have, see, that's, that's hedonism, not biblical Christianity, folks. That's hedonism. That's the pursuit of pleasure because you think that pleasure is the place where meaning is. And we reject that as the people of God. We failed to believe and embrace the truth that God himself is the ultimate good and ultimate joy and the ultimate pleasure in the universe. Therefore, our pursuit of God ought to be above all things. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do we believe the word of God? I love what C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Our desire for Jesus, they're not too strong. They're too weak. They're too weak. And I think Lewis is right about many in the church today being half-hearted, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition. And what a picture. Think about that. Little children, little children ferociously guarding their mud pies from the God who only wants their, their best to love them and he wants their righteousness and, their gl- and glory for them and all the goodness that he has for them is what he wants. And, they, and they, we guard our mud. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would say it this way. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. But you don't have because you don't ask. And you ask, but you don't receive because you ask it wrongly to spend it on your own passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? I remember learning this vocabulary word my senior year of high school, and I can't say that I've had much use for it in common vernacular, but I do find it helpful when it comes to this concept of our relationship with the Lord, the word is cuckold. It's a word invented, I I believe, by William Shakespeare, which communicates the idea. You ready for the definition here? It's the idea of a husband who gives his wife an allowance, which she turns around and secretly uses to commit adultery and finance other lovers. He becomes a cuckold. And everybody else sees it, and everybody else knows about it, and they laugh at him. Like That guy's an idiot. He doesn't know. He's financing his wife's infidelity. Can you fathom the audacity? That's crazy to me. Not only infidelity, but asking the victim to finance the sordid adultery. But here's the point. We make God a cuckold by asking him for things that we only want to spend on our own pleasure. 
That's what we're doing when we, when we do that. Take that, in for, take that in for just a minute. Let it just sit on your heart and feel the weight of that. Because this is precisely why Scripture regularly uses idolatry and adultery, adultery interchangeably. Right? Because it's the same concept. It's just the difference is, is it your spouse or is it with God? Who are you cheating on? It seems such an elusive and difficult truth to embrace that pleasure in this life is always momentary. It has no staying power whatsoever. Listen to the words of King David regarding this, the better reward. Pay attention to the progression here, Psalm 16, 7 to 11. David says, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my, also my heart instructs me. So, so right off the bat, the, the individual, in this case David, for us, is willingly and gladly receiving instruction from the Lord through his word. And I can't overstate the importance of that. But, but the mind and the heart, are being engaged and being changed and sanctified here in, in, in verse 7. And so then David says, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. So, so now the prior commitment of the heart to honor the Lord Jesus always and in every situation uh, is allowing the will to come into alignment with God. Not just the thoughts, but now the will, the choices, right? Because obedience is the manifestation of that disposition. When we start to align our thoughts, then the next thing that happens is we start to obey, right? And this is what David says in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells in security. You have not abandoned to Sheol, my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And so now the emotions come online, and the emotions are aligned with God's truth the right thinking of the person, the willing choice to walk in obedience. We don't allow our emotions to lead us. We bring them under the authority of the Word of God. And then, and then the last verse in the psalm, David says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, God's not withholding from us. Here's... Here is the elusive fulfillment that the heart is constantly longing for. Pleasure was never designed to be a thing unto itself. Never. So the question for us, as Jesus' bride, the church, is will we submit our pursuit of pleasure to Jesus? Will we trust Him to supply all our needs according to His riches and glory? Because delayed gratification is ultimately and infinitely better. It's infinitely better. Whatever you think you could grab a hold of in this life that will give you pleasure is, is a mud pie compared to what God has for you. And we're saying that to compromise and, and give in to pleasure now is, is, the, is the worst thing you could do because there's a better reward. There's a better reward. What happens under the sun apart from God is that all that pleasure, however good it is, is locked into the sensation of the moment. And so therefore, it's always temporal. It's always fading. It's always passing. And all pleasure is designed to be enjoyed in the context of a prior moral commitment with your spouse in your, in your marriage and with God in your life. A prior moral commitment. So Augustine would say this, and we'll wrap up with this. This is the last thing. Augustine would say, he who has God has everything. And he who does not have God has nothing. 
He who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. And my question for us, church, is do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Deep down in our heart of hearts, when life is hard and the enemy whispers that just a little compromise for the sake of some pleasure would be the thing that would fix it for you right then. Do we really believe that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore? He who has the Lord Jesus Christ has everything, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would drive your word down deep in our hearts. This is so counterculture. And, and, and even though many of us in this room would hear these words, we'd affirm them, it's still uh, swimming upstream because we've cultivated a pattern of response in our lives. A desire for pleasure, seeking a way out from the pain of any given situation or just the dreariness of life. And we seek those things as basically a functional savior. And, and so, Lord, we just repent this morning. We repent of that. We acknowledge that the ultimate pleasure and satisfaction is found in you and in you alone. So, Lord, help us to be faithful to you. We don't want to turn you into a cuckold. We don't want to ask you for stuff so that we can spend it on ourselves and our own pleasures. We want to build your kingdom. So, God, be gracious to us. Turn our hearts. Make right in us what is wrong as we submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. When we experience fear, it's almost always the things that we're scared will enslave us, that they'll overpower us, but very seldom do we fear our own pleasures and passions. And that divine twist of fate, that's really the more common occurrence. And so I encourage you as you go from this place to shun false gods, false worldviews, temporary compromises when it comes to the pleasures of this life and choose Jesus. Choose faithfulness to his word as you walk in the power of the Spirit and be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.